Hello, and welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. And welcome back, y'all. So today we're going to be discussing the blonde butcher, the trunk murderess, Winnie Ruth Judd. Winnie Ruth Judd boarded a train with two large trunks and not much else. She was trembling, which must have caught the attention of a few travelers on a packed train headed to Los Angeles. Phoenix had been enjoying a balmy October, which was not unusual for the desert city in the Valley of the Sun, but it is important later on. When he boarded the train that would take her to L.A., to see the only two men in her life she could trust with a secret that was about to leak. Unfortunately for her, it leaked too soon. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start at the beginning. Winnie Ruth Judd was born Winifred Ruth McKinnell in Oxford, Indiana on June 29, 1905. The eldest of two children... Her father, H.J. McKinnell, was a Methodist minister, and her mother, Carrie, was a schoolteacher. She was born into a seemingly caring and kind household, full of love, if not money. Disliking her first name, she went solely by Ruth, but Ruth appeared to have some troubles starting in her late teens. At 17 years old, she accuses her then-boyfriend, Frank Hull, of getting her pregnant and then abducting her. The abduction lasted a few hours, and she was returned home as if nothing happened. Frank didn't know what had happened either until he had heard it at school. Apparently, the whole story was made up to get back not at Frank, but at a school friend who kept taunting her about not being able to keep a man interested. This story comes to us from her father, and I believe from an interview she did while she was in jail, but it was always clear on both sides that she lied about the abduction and admitted to it once Frank was about to be arrested. It's this knee-jerk reaction to teasing that you should remember later. Ruth took a job soon after that incident at the Indiana State Hospital as an orderly, where she caught the attention of Dr. William Craig Judd. Dr. Judd had been a bright and upcoming star in the medical field when World War I broke out in 1914. He voluntarily joined the cause and was sent off to France as a first lieutenant of the Navy. The First World War was heartless and brutal on the soldiers, and that included the doctors because they were often in the trenches with the soldiers so they could attend the wounded and remove them from the area where possible. One day, though, his number was called, and he was hit by a German artillery shell. And I ended up looking up what that might have looked like, and they were pretty hefty, measuring around 150 millimeters to 280 millimeters in diameter. I also looked up the difference between artillery shells and bullets because I had never thought about it before, and the shells tended to be explosive, so this was a horrific wound. In World War I, those shells were also used to spread chemical warfare, which is a large reason for World War I being remembered as one of the bloodiest and most deadly of the wars to date. Eight million soldiers were killed 
7 million were permanently disabled and 15 million were seriously injured. And that was only the European personnel. And to put this into perspective, Germany lost 15.1% of its active male population. Austria-Hungary lost 17.1% and France lost 10.5%. It was a vicious and shocking war for the time. There had been nothing like it. And I remember first learning about it in school and just being appalled at the brutality of it, especially the nerve gas aspect. I can easily imagine that someone who went overseas and fought in this war would seek any outlet possible to get rid of the memories of human suffering that they saw there. It was probably easy enough for anyone to turn to morphine, but the injured especially. It was the painkiller of choice at the time. Most soldiers who had been injured were given it, then weaned off it when it was no longer necessary, but Dr. William Judd wasn't because he never had to be. He came back from the war and got a job at the first hospital he could, and kept writing himself prescription after prescription of morphine. When it became a problem for the hospital he was working at, he would either get fired or quit and move on to the next. By the time he started work at Indiana State Hospital, he was 46 years old. And then he met the beautiful Ruth. He was 46 and she was 17. They fell in love though and would marry two years later on April 18th, 1924. And I believe her parents were not about this match. They thought he was too old. I don't remember where I read that, but I believe that was the case, which I think anybody would feel. But, you know, where there's love, people will get married. And if they waited two years till she was 19, I kind of get it, but it's still, it's still gross. But anyway, Dr. Judd immediately decides after marriage that the job in Indiana isn't working for him and his addiction. So he and Ruth move to Mexico and he starts a job administering health care to miners in a copper mine. They decide that Mexico will be as good a place as any to start a family. But Ruth experiences two miscarriages that send her into a depression. Unfortunately, she also contracts tuberculosis. And at the time, the only course of medicine that seemed to work was to, quote, dry out in some place where the air was clean and dry, which was not a copper mine in Mexico. Many people had gone to Colorado, as we've discussed in prior episodes, and others went to the Southwest, probably due to its being a border state and known for its arid desert air, Ruth decides to move to Phoenix, Arizona. She quickly finds work as a nanny or governess, I've heard it said both ways, to the Lee Ford family. Which is weird because, like, hello, she was suffering from tuberculosis, a highly contagious disease, and by many accounts, looked like it. But either way, she moves into a little place with her husband and begins caring for the children at the Lee Ford home. The Lee Fords were wealthy and powerful in the city and were part of the country club set that seemingly controlled the city. I've seen some articles describe them as plutocrats. Um, I could not find information about the Lee Ford family, so I really don't know what they did. But they were wealthy, and that's really all we need for this part of the story. (laughs) 
So they were really good friends with their next door neighbors, the Hallorans, and often had them over for dinner and other special occasions. And into the story walks Happy Jack Halloran, the Lumber King of Phoenix. Jack was full of charm and charisma, and as soon as he noticed the new blonde nanny or governess, he threw that charm on her like a blanket, and eventually Ruth snuggles up. Now, Jack Halloran was a married man with several kids, just like the Fords, but he was well known to cheat on his wife with damn near everyone in Phoenix. He wasn't known as Happy Jack for nothing. He soon begins coming over to the Judd home and befriending Dr. Judd. Ruth tries to avoid him, but he invaded every sector of her life, both at home and at work. So Ruth eventually falls head over heels in love with him, knowing all the while that he not only cheated on his wife, but made little effort to hide that fact around town. She mistook the attention he showered on her for love, which is unfortunate because it looks like he used her and made her a constant participant in finding new women for him. A few months after starting this affair, Ruth leaves the Lee Ford home to work as a medical secretary at the Lois Grunow Clinic. I don't know if it's Grunow or Grunow, but either way, she works at that clinic. We don't know why she left, but her affair with their neighbor may have had something to do with it. Also at this point, Dr. Judd loses his position at the copper mine and leaves Ruth in Phoenix while he checks himself into a California rehab facility. It's here that she meets 32-year-old Oregon divorcee Agnes Ann Leroy, an x-ray technician at the clinic. They become fast friends, probably bonding over both of them coming to Arizona to dry out from seemingly mild cases of tuberculosis, though I think Anne, or Annie as she's also called, um, I think her case is a little bit more serious because she eventually has surgery for it. Annie introduces Ruth to her roommate, Hedvig, or Sammy Samuelson. The three get along so well that Ruth moves in with them temporarily until she can save up for her own apartment. They were the best of friends and did everything together. Ruth and Sammy would both lend Anne money to help with bills and doctor's visits as her tuberculosis had caused longer-lasting injuries. At some point in all this, Ruth introduces them to Happy Jack, and he makes his moves on Annie and Sammy. Ruth recalls in her confession letter that even though she knew they were both sleeping with Jack, she never felt jealous in those first few months. It was like they were in this together until Annie went off to Oregon for a surgery. Ruth, Sammy, and Jack had been sending her money to help her live while recovering, with Ruth saying that she went without often so that she could help her friend. So when Annie came back to Phoenix, they expected a loving and happy reunion full of gratitude for man, but nothing of the kind would occur. In fact, Annie came home with a sense of superiority around the girls, dressed to the nines in beautiful clothes. This is when Ruth begins to get jealous and annoyed with her, which makes sense. I mean, if I was sending money to my friend only to find out that she didn't actually need it, I would be a little upset. Ruth had 
also been sending her family money because her mom had fallen ill and couldn't earn her income as a school teacher. So the seeds of discord against Annie were sown here first. It was also mentioned that Jack had given Annie $300, which in 1930 or 31 was equivalent to about $6,000. So to Ruth, it probably seemed like this girl comes back. She gets this money from Jack that none of the other girls got, even though they probably needed it. And Annie comes back just thinking like, oh, I'm the main girl. And it's like, none of y'all are the main girl. You're all in this in the same type of way. It's all terrible. In Ruth's confession letter, she also mentions that Annie came back with this like really nice robe And this is when Ruth began to get jealous and annoyed with her, which makes sense as she was sending her all this money only to find out she probably didn't need it. Ruth had also been sending her family money because her mom had fallen ill and couldn't earn her income as a school teacher. So the seeds of discord were sown here first. And the breach was so far gone that Ruth had moved into her own apartment on Brill Street to get away from having to see Jack all the time at the house with the girls. To cope with all this, Ruth would take phenobarbital, marketed then as luminol. Barbiturates like luminol and secanol were marketed to treat stress, depression, and anxiety, and were available over the counter in 1931. The problem with them is that they were highly addictive. They caused hallucinations, confusion, sedation, and could even slow or stop your breathing. It's no wonder that they were replaced with supposedly weaker drugs like Valium, Xanax, and Clonopin, which we know came with their own set of problems. So 1931 rolls around, and all three women are sleeping with Happy Jack. Which, please excuse my constantly referring to him as Happy Jack, but it just cracks me up. (laughs) Um, So, they're all sleeping with him, along with any new women that Ruth introduces him to in an effort to keep him around her. Now, I would say that I don't get how they were all so understanding that Jack would and did sleep with their friends. And Ruth seemingly was a active and willing participant in finding more women for him. But the more I thought about it, Ruth at least, and I can't speak for the others, but Ruth at least had such a low self-esteem that of course a seemingly confident and successful man wanting her would be paramount to her and she would do anything to keep him around if it meant that he showed her any small bit of love too which is very sad, but I think it explains it. And it's far from the only example we have in history of this happening. You see it in a lot of the um, French and English courts of queens finding mistresses for their husbands to keep them happy and keep them from sometimes paying attention to the role that they were playing behind the scenes. So it's a difficult place to be, but I think it is a reality that is very hard to face. And The situation was never going to end well. It was doomed from the start, especially once Annie had started to resent her position in the group, which it definitely seemed as though she had. She began taunting and teasing Ruth for how Jack slept with everyone, 
asking her why she kept introducing new girls to him if she loved him so much, which is a good question, but I think it's been answered. Earlier in the day, on October 16th, 1931, Ruth brought Jack into the office to meet a cute new co-worker who Annie believed had syphilis. Later in the day, Annie confronted Ruth and found that she had no remorse for her actions. And that's weird to me. Like, do you not know what syphilis is? Do you have no care for your own health? That's insane. Anyway, Ruth decides instead of really dissecting her own feelings, that she was going to accuse Anne and Sammy of engaging in a lesbian relationship, a rumor that had been circling the office mill for a while. Anne and Sammy had traveled from Alaska together to Phoenix. They lived together. But you know what? Women can have friendships too, you know. And sometimes they can be very deep friendships. Like I call two of my friends my heterosexual life partners. But, and I wouldn't mind living with them. But it doesn't mean anything. And even if it did, who cares? Like, shut up. But then again, it's 1931. So it is what it is. Now, I would think that the two of them sleeping with the same man wouldn't necessarily make them lesbians, but who knows? Life is crazy. So while Anne was upset at that accusation and Ruth was clearly putting her health in danger, she chose, instead of verbalizing those feelings, to laugh at Ruth and bully her for being so naive. She even went as far as telling her that she was going to tell her husband in California that she was sleeping with the town wolfhound. Girl, so are you. <laughs> and please let me be clear. I'm not saying she deserved anything that happened to her. Um, that was Ruth's serious overreaction. I'm just saying that the phrase, both can be true, is something that I'm really taking into consideration this year. Annie can have been a difficult person to get along with over time. But Ruth can also have been a horrible person for choosing to murder her, which she very then very much did. Both can be true. And it still means Annie is a victim of Ruth's reaction. So let's get back to that night. So after the argument, Jack never shows up for his date with Ruth probably because he was sleeping with a girl who may or may not have had syphilis. So she laid in bed, angry and hurt over Annie's words. Annie was a divorcee from Oregon. She wasn't trapped like Ruth felt she was, with a drug-addicted husband who couldn't keep a job. Ruth's resentment at being teased reminded her of being taunted over a man when she was 17 all over again. But this time, she wouldn't play the victim. Supported by her pills, lack of sleep, and jealousy, she grabbed her twenty-five caliber pistol, along with a knife, and went to Annie and Sammy's house. When she arrived, they were still awake, so she hid in the empty house next door. Once the house on 2nd Street darkened, she crept up to the front door, which she knew would be unlocked. Taking time to remove her shoes, and placing the knife inside, she opened the door and sat down on the couch. Ruth describes her condition as extremely nervous, nauseous, and panicky, but still very resolved. While sitting on the couch, waiting for an opportunity, she fell asleep holding the gun ready. 
But Sammy kept getting up to go to the bathroom, which woke her up several times. She knew that Sammy was sleeping with Jack just as much as Annie was, but Sammy didn't taunt her like Anne did. Ruth describes hearing the milkman then, which signified that it was morning, though still extremely early as it was dark outside. Anne chose to make her feel like a naive, ugly duckling. So Anne's room was the room she snuck into when Sammy yet again went to the bathroom. She crept up to the bed where Annie was peacefully sleeping and shot her in the head. Sammy, immediately alerted, called out, Annie, what did you drop? And when Sammy came into the room, Ruth says that her body went completely limp and she allowed Sammy to take the gun away from her. She said, Sammy, I'm crazy. I've lost my mind. Give me that gun and I will blow my brains out right here in this door. Sammy, of course, like any normal person, held on to the gun and said, no, you need to leave right this minute. Although I probably, I don't even know what I would do. That's an insane situation. The next events are up for debate, but I'll tell Ruth's version of the story because that's all we've got because she's a murderer. So moving on. Instead of leaving, Ruth remembered the knife she had brought with her and attacked Sammy with it, stabbing her in the shoulder, which I guess at some point she got from outside because she does in her confession make it a point to say that she left the knife outside, but maybe sometime during the night she got it. Who knows? So Sammy, still with the gun, shot at Ruth to defend herself and landed a bullet in Ruth's hand, but it wasn't enough. Ruth is described often as small and frail, though she was 5'7", about 125 pounds. So she was described this way, but she was strengthened by the adrenaline and quickly overpowered Sammy and wrestled the gun back from her after that short struggle. She then shot her in the shoulder, the head and the chest. Hedvig Samuelson, who had little to nothing to do with Ruth's original intentions, was dead. Ruth cleaned up the floor and pulled Annie's body into the bathroom. Then she turned to Sammy. Sammy was stuffed directly into a steamer trunk. Her body hadn't gotten stiff yet, so dragging her and stuffing into the, her into the trunk wasn't that difficult, according to Ruth. Sammy had a very small frame. She then cleaned up as much as she could, changed into a clean dress, and made a phone call to the Grunau Clinic to let them know that Annie would not be coming in. But I will say she didn't let them know as Ruth, Sammy or Annie's friend, Sammy and Annie's friend. She let them know as Annie. She imitated her voice. The nurse who she made the call to knew right away that this was not Anne uh, calling, Anne Leroy calling. She knew that this was somebody impersonating her voice. I don't know if she knew it was Ruth doing it, but she definitely knew that it was an impersonation. So she made that call and then she went to work because she did not want to cause suspicion by also not showing up. After she left work around four, she went back to her apartment, fed her cat, and then returned to the murder house. Sammy was still in the bathroom where she had left her, but rigor mortis had set in and Ruth had a hard time trying to get her body into the same steamer trunk Anne was in. The process of decay was setting in and making her body heavier. 
So she decided to get two knives from the kitchen. And in her confession letter, she says the knives were cheap knives from the kitchen. I'm not sure how that's important, but it was mentioned. And she cut her body into more manageable pieces that she could carry. So she fit what she could into the steamer trunk. But what was left, she put into a suitcase and a hat box. Ruth's first thought was to ship the baggage to L.A., where she had somehow in this time frame bought a train ticket to. But when the baggage men came to pick up the trunks, they said that they were too heavy to ship. Ruth would have to take them with her on the train. So she asked them to take one of them to her sister's apartment on Brill Street, which we know is her house or her apartment, and the others to the train station. In her confession, she seems to brag a little that Anne's rolled-up mattress, quote, soaking in blood, was right there in the living room next to the trunk. It was like she was relishing that she knew this secret that no one else did. Now, all she had to do was hop on the train to L.A. and meet up with her brother and husband. And she definitely had told her brother what was going on. In a tearful confession, she told Bert McKinnell that they had to get rid of the body somehow, and she asked for his help. He, of course, I'm sure with some misgivings, wanted to help his older sister. The problem came with the baggage. While the weather in Phoenix had been balmy, it certainly wasn't cool enough to disguise the scent of decay. In Phoenix, they were starting to get ripe. But by the time that they arrived in L.A. on October 18th, two days after being murdered, they were reeking enough for the train baggage handlers to take notice and pull them aside. When they did, this tr- the trunks and suitcases began to leak a substance that looked a lot like blood. Now, I want to say it was the trunk and the suitcase that began leaking. The hat box, we don't know if it began leaking because Ruth had that with her on the train. So if it did, it leaked on her clothes, on the floor, in her lap. Who knows? But it leaked there. Now, at first, the baggage land handlers thought it might be deer because a lot of trophy hunters would go to Arizona and hunt and would try to smuggle deer out of the state on trains. Now, why they did this, I don't know. Honestly, who knows? It was probably to avoid a tax or something, and I'm not looking it up. It would be a very specific thing to look up. If you decide to look it up, please let me know in the comments on this post when I do post it. So when they called Ruth over to the trunks, they asked her for a key to open them because they wanted to make sure they were dear. After all, this was LA in the 1930s. It definitely could be bodies. But Ruth said she didn't have the key on her and she'd have to call her husband to give it to her. So still thinking it was dear, they gave her that opportunity and said, okay, go call your husband. And she immediately got into her brother's car and jet. Of course, when the police finally arrived, when they realized that Ruth had left, they called the police and the police came to pick the lock. They found at the very top the head, arms, and legs of Hedvig Samuelson and the folded body down below of Agnes Ann Leroy. Once they opened the suitcase, they found Sammy's torso. Ruth would spend the next three days hiding out in department stores and other businesses. She had instructed her brother to just drop her off anywhere on the street so she could hide and not 
implicate him. But it really didn't last long. She went to Broadway department store first, and she penned a confession letter meant for her husband, describing incidents in her life which led her up to this, and a partial description of what had happened that night. At some point, she must have decided against it because she shoved it down the sink and tried to run water to make it go down the drain, but all that ended up doing was flooding the place, and the letter remained intact. This would later become known as the drain pipe confession. So after the three days, she was found hiding out in a funeral parlor and arrested. Now, police in Arizona had been notified of this murder on the night of the 18th and would conduct a search of the house on 2nd Street on the 19th. Unfortunately, as we saw a lot at this time with the murders in the early 1900s, a lot of evidence was lost because the police not only let themselves in, but reporters and neighbors too. And this was mostly because the police didn't secure the site and the landlord began selling tours of the freshly bloody duplex for 10 cents a person, which in today's money equals about $1.84 a person. So still a little under two bucks to see a murder scene. The mattresses, for example, in the house were missing. And while the one that Sammy was sleeping on was found miles away, the one soaked in, the bl- in blood by Ruth's own admission was never found. Now, I do have to say here that the story I've been telling you, the timeline of events rather, comes from a confession letter she wrote to her lawyer once in prison in 1933. And it was not discovered until 2014. So a lot of the questions that are about to come up, a lot of the weird stories, all of that has been in existence since the murders. So because we have this confession letter from 2014 that was given to one of her attorneys, we know the truth of the matter, at least the truth according to Ruth. Oh, that rhymes, hey. Um, The truth according to her in 1933. But back in 1931, the police started to concoct their own version of events because they didn't yet have that trumped-up version that Ruth would tell once in police custody. They said that she must have snuck into the bungalow and killed both girls in their sleep, hence both missing mattresses. They made her out to be a jealous hag with a history of sleeping with men to get what she wanted out of them. The newspapers, of course, this is in the time of Hearst and yellow journalism, they took the story and ran with it, painting her as the tiger woman, the blonde butcher, and the trunk murderess. It was said that William Randolph Hearst knew that her story would sell so many papers that he paid for her legal defense team, just so long as he got exclusive interviews about the case from her. The story she tells is of a jealous Annie getting into a fight with her after a night of drinking and bridge, and Sammy only coming into the fray to help and ending up dead herself. Ruth also says that all this took place around the 10.50 p.m. time frame, which neighbors then refuted, with some having heard the shots at 10.50, some saying, no, 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 I heard that way earlier. Not earlier, I'm sorry, but late, technically, earlier the next day. She said she got a gunshot wound in her left hand, which some witnesses would attest to and some would not. And once lawyered up, she begins to bring Jack into the story. 
She alleges that Jack showed up to her place after she killed the girls, and when she told him what happened, he immediately called in a friend who he knew was running a back alley abortion clinic so that he could use his tools to dismember the bodies and put them into trunks. Ruth said that Jack wanted her to dispose of the trunks in the desert and be done with the matter, and he helped her clean the house. Of course, Jack was arrested and indicted as an accomplice to the murders, and his preliminary trial began in December of 1931. I do want to make a point here to say that when they found the suitcase and the hat box and all of that in Ruth's possession, they also found a surgical kit. So just putting that out there. While Ruth testified for three days during this trial, she admitted to repacking the bodies herself later, and Halloran's team said that since Ruth had killed only in self-defense anyway, she wasn't really guilty of anything. So by default, neither was Jack. His defense ended up winning the day, and he was exonerated for the crime. But Ruth's trial would come one month later. The case went to trial among sensational headlines in 1932, just 10 days before her 27th birthday in January. She was only tried for the murder, though, of Agnes Ann Leroy, and the dismemberment and murder of Sammy was never part of the original trial. Why? I don't know. That's dumb. They should have added that. That's a big part of it. It's like half of it. <laughs> Come on now. The state also sought the death penalty to show that they took murder around these parts seriously. That shows up in a few articles I read, so I'm guessing that they hadn't been super efficient or meticulous about trying criminals in Phoenix prior to this. Now, keep in mind, this is the Wild West, Arizona being the home to the OK Corral and things like that. So I guess they were really trying to prove a point. Now, the trial was over pretty quickly. Ruth didn't ever take the stand in her own defense, a move which has puzzled people for decades, and she ends up being convicted of the murder of Agnes Ann Leroy. She was sentenced to hang on February 17, 1933. The jurors had really only recommended the death penalty at the insistence of one man, because they thought it would be easier to get Ruth to tell the truth, more of the truth, especially with any accomplices, because they didn't feel like she did this on her own. And if they put the death penalty, if they put hanging over her head, maybe she'd start telling the truth. Because they did not feel that she had done this alone. They felt there's no way that this woman could have dismembered a body and then stuffed them all in a trunk on her own. So they were taken seriously. Ruth was freaking out, but it also occurred that her lawyers were kind of freaking out because they were like, no, she's not, she's not right. So it was only right up until her death sentence, like right until it was about to be carried out that the case was reopened and she was deemed mentally incompetent to go through that. From there, she would be sent to a psychiatric facility from which she would escape twice. The last one being in 1969, she escaped long enough to go back to L.A., assume the name of Marion Lane, and would even secure a job as a nanny for a few months before being found and brought back. In 1971, however, after two years of lawyers fighting for her release, she was paroled and later given an absolute discharge of her parole requirements. She went back to work for the family that she had once worked for when she escaped the mental facility back in 69 
until the children were old enough not to need a nanny anymore. She then lived in Stockton, California, and eventually moved back to Phoenix, where she died at the age of 93 on October 23, 1998. Now, the interest in her case has been strong since the day it happened. And in the 70s, when she was paroled, there was a book written and I believe a movie made with marionette actors in the early 1980s. But in 1993, a journalist named Jaina Bombersbach, and if I I pronounced that wrong, I'm sorry, looked into court records, newspaper clippings, and even interviewed Ruth herself about the murders. In her investigation, she blames the good old boy system of Phoenix, to which Jack Halloran belonged, for the bias against Ruth, alleging that he had to have had something to do with it. However, she also befriended Ruth, which in turn gave her a bias towards her. Ruth, in all that time, would often say that she could not wait until there was a time when no one would remember Winnie Ruth Judd. But back to Happy Jack. His reputation never recovered from his association with the trial, as it should not. He ended up having to sell his lumberyard for pennies on the dollar and moved to Tucson, where he died in his 50s. I don't know what became of his family, but they were victims of this case too, and I can only hope that they eventually found peace. Winnie's husband, who had been beside her through the trial, through everything, stayed beside her even while she was in prison for the murder of a romantic rival, two romantic rivals in a way, and he remained married to her and in love with her until the day that he died in October of 1945. And that is the story of Winnie Ruth Judd the blonde butcher of Phoenix, Arizona. I hope that this has been educational and y'all have enjoyed this story because it is, it's different. It takes a little bit of a twist and a turn. Now books have been written just like the Lizzie Borden case, very similar to the Lizzie Borden case. Books have been written about this. So there are some details that I may have missed. There are uh, deep dives I would have liked to go on, especially with Jack Halloran. I still don't think he had anything to do with it, but I would have liked to really dig into this. So um, let me know what y'all think about this. Let me know if you think Jack was involved. To me, this guy didn't want to have his cover blown up that much, you know, like enough to go and hide bodies in the desert, go clean up after a woman that he didn't really consider his girlfriend. Um, After the deaths of two women that he very much was sleeping with. I don't even know if he liked them, but he was sleeping with them. I just don't see it. A powerful man like that, I don't get it. And the physician that supposedly helped her out and cut up the bodies for her in her first confession letter, um, he was never named and never found. And the physician's tools were with her. So I don't know. It kind of seems as though she did it on her own. It's a lot to do, but just the sheer callousness that she discusses how she cleaned up the murder scene and had the bloody rags and the bloody mattress in the room with her and the delivery men. And she thought that was interesting or at least funny. One of the two. I mean, it was just awful. I think she did it on her own. And while I know that she was probably a very sweet old lady... I mean, she still killed two women. 
She intentionally, she went in, there was no question about it, intentionally went in to kill Anne Leroy. Sammy was a, a byproduct of that, but she did. So as much as I see why she did it, and when I talk about things from her perspective, that's what I'm trying to provide is, you know, Ruth's perspective. I wanted to see why she would have done this. So I'm curious on this one. Please let me know what you think. Why would Ruth have done this? All right, everyone. I hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening. Remember to rate and review my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, because it does help me get found by um, new listeners. And I really, truly appreciate it. I am on Instagram. Please find that. I am at historical paranormal. Super easy to find and comment. Let me know what you think. All right. Bye y'all. The Historical Paranormal Podcast is produced, written, and hosted by Crystal Nichols.